My name's Jonathan, and it is my joy to be with you again this morning. For those of you who haven't been around this summer, uh, I and my family, me and my family, we've had the pleasure of getting to worship with your church three times. This is the third time, or four times. This is our fourth time here, uh, my third time to get to bring the word of God to you this morning, and it has been a joy to connect with your church and to share and worship together and to go to God's word. And if you were here, either of those other two times, uh, you may remember that I've done a little bit of, uh, like I, I hesitate to use the word, but mini-series through these three times. And first we looked at uh, John in the, the Gospel of John, where Nicodemus came to Jesus and he encountered Jesus. So we talked about encountering and meeting with Jesus. And then the next time I was here, we looked at Colossians, where we got to, to know Jesus, to see who he was. He was the image of the invisible God, the one who is before all things and the one in whom all things are reconciled. And to continue that series, we, we looked at meeting Jesus, we've looked at knowing Jesus, and this morning I want to spend my remaining time preaching the word to you at the life that Jesus offers. And so after we meet Jesus, after we know Jesus, we can think about and contemplate and meditate on the life that Jesus offers that. And we'll do that by looking at uh, Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open there. And before we turn to that, let me uh, just say a few words about the life that Jesus offers, because it's the life that God has, in one sense, always offered to his people. God has always been calling his people into a better life. And so if you look at the very first pages of Scripture, you see that God made this beautiful world, and he made it very good. And he gave it to Adam and Eve, and he said, this is yours. Be fruitful and multiply and enjoy the life that I'm giving you. And pretty soon after, we think Adam and Eve fell from God in their sin. And ever since then, God has been calling them back, calling us, his children, back to a better life. And so through the Old Testament, you see constantly God calling his people to a better life. And that's what, when you look at the Old Testament, you see there's these weird legal codes and laws. And essentially what they are is they're calling the people of Israel, the people, the children of God, to a better life. Perhaps most clearly in the Old Testament, you see it in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are an invitation to live the life that we were supposed to live. You also see it throughout every portion of the Old Testament. So in the prophets, you see prophets like Micah who tell us that his goal in life is, is to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And that's a call to a better life. And it's the same in the New Testament. The New Testament, Jesus shows up, and what he does is he shows us a picture of what that life looks like both by his example of the way that he lived, living the perfect life, but also by his teaching. So we get teachings like the Sermon on the Mount that tell us what the, the blessed life is. Blessed is the man who. And we get throughout his teaching, throughout Jesus' ministry, he's telling us how to live in the way that he created us to live. And it's for our good as well as God's glory. 
And the, in this way, the entire Bible exhorts us to the life that God has created for us. And ultimately, we see that this life is only found in Jesus Christ. And so when we meet him and when we know him, we need to ask the question of what life is he calling us to? And so I invite you to do that with me by, by looking at 1 Thessalonians. And there's a thousand places that we could go for this type of life, but we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians 5. And I'll read verses 12 through, uh, we're going to go all the way through 24, 12 through 24. But we're going to focus most of our time on three verses, 16, 17, and 18. But if you would, uh, read along with me as you, you read through your word. I'll read it here from the pulpit from 1 Thessalonians Five, starting with verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint hearted, help the weak. Be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Would you pray with me this morning? Almighty God, you are the faithful one. And in you are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge and health and goodness and life. Open our eyes this morning that we may see the wonders of your word and give us grace that we may clearly understand and follow the way of your wisdom. Follow after our Lord Jesus and the life he offers. Christ, open our eyes and our hearts to see you this morning, we pray. Amen. As I mentioned, we're going to spend most of our time this morning looking at Verses 16, 17, and 18. And if you're the type that takes any notes, those are going to be our outline. Do we have? Oh, we've got one. We've got it up on the screen here. So, our outline this morning, our three points are we going to look, we're going to look at what Paul tells us to do to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, and to give thanks in all circumstances. And we're going to see that this is an invitation. To a life that not only follows after Jesus, but to a life that is how we were created to live. And so let's look at the first of these. Then Paul's exhortation, his, his command even to rejoice always. And when I was preparing for the sermon and I, I began to think about this command, I'll confess that I was immediately in tension. 
This command, it brought attention to me personally because there's, there's two truths I think about when I think about someone telling me, rejoice always. And I think first, that's exactly the kind of life that I want. I want a life that is full of joy. I want a life that rejoices all the time. I want to be happy. I'm guessing you do too. Most of us want this life. And yet at the same time, I can't help but think that's not the life I live every day. And so I've got a tension between what I want and a tension between what I experience in reality. And I think that this experience of mine is probably, if you're honest with yourself, it's an experience that you've had before because it's an experience of every person. We all want a life of rejoicing. We all want a good life. We want a life that is Jesus taught in, in the Sermon on the Mount, that is blessed, that's happy, that leads to contentment. And yet everyone experiences sorrow and difficulty in their life. And even Paul, the person who wrote this letter, even he has that kind of life. So in Romans, he tells us that he doesn't understand his own actions. He says, I don't understand my own actions, for I do what I don't want to do. And the, the thing and I or and I don't excuse me, he says, I don't do what I want to do, but I end up doing the very thing I hate. And so Paul admits to living in this mixed tension where he wrestles with the sin that is still part of his life. And whether you and I, we're all wrestling with some type of struggle or sin or sin either in us or against us that keeps us from rejoicing. And that may look a million different ways. It may look like pride or selfishness or vanity or lust or laziness, or anger, or a number of ways that we lack self-control. And these are the times where we find ourselves, when we're, we're wrestling with those things, we find ourselves in a place that seems to be the opposite of joy. And again, whether that's the result of sin in our own heart, or sin done against us, we live in a tension of wanting to experience a life that rejoices always and yet not being able to do so. And so what's Paul doing here? Why is he telling us, if we live in these mixed lives, why is he telling us that we are to rejoice always? Is he telling us that we just need to stuff down that other stuff? We need to stuff down our sadness and not think about it and just be happy and be joyful? Well, I don't think that's it. And so instead, what I think Paul is doing is that he's asking us and showing us to consider the source of our joy. And if he's calling us to something that, that none of us seem able to do, none of us seem able to rejoice always, we're not perfect in our joy, then Paul wants us to think about the reason for that joy. What is it that makes us able to rejoice? And the answer, according to Paul, if you read all of his letters, the answer is always the same. The source of our joy is Jesus Christ. It is what he has done who he is, and what he's promised to do. We rejoice not, not because of what's in us, not because of anything in us, but we rejoice because of what Christ has done for us. And here in, in the letter to the Thessalonians, Paul is constantly reminding them of that. He's constantly telling the, the people at this church that God has chosen them in his kindness 
that in his grace he's reached out and rescued and saved this church. And so they have reason to give praise. And this is also one of the places in the New Testament that most clearly talks about what Jesus is going to do. It talks about the return of Jesus when he comes back. And so Paul's putting a picture before them of remember what Christ has done for you. Remember what he's promised to do. He has rescued you out of your darkness and transferred you into the kingdom of light. And he has promised to give you a good future in his heavenly kingdom. And so our joy is rooted in who Christ is and what he's done. And so as a result, Paul's call for us to rejoice is essentially a call into a better life. He's calling us away from a self-directed life where we might look at ourselves and focus on ourselves or our circumstances, and he's calling us to a life that is focused on Jesus Christ. He's not giving us a command that we won't be able to follow. Instead, he's painting a picture of a life that we want and a life that is available to us through Jesus. And we rejoice because of what Jesus has done for us. Again, not because of anything that we've done, but because of what he's done. And so our joy is rooted in Christ. So as our joy is rooted in Christ, we ask ourselves, what might that look like? And I would ask you, have you ever met someone that you would say, that person is a joyful person. They seem to always be rejoicing. And I, I thought over the same question this past week of, of what that person looks like. And, and I'm not talking about someone who's merely got a cheerful disposition, someone who seems to you know, pull themselves up by their bootstrap and smile all the time. I'm talking about someone who exudes joy. Someone who you can be in their presence and their life can have the most difficult circumstances going around and yet they're able to give thanks and be joyful. And I've met a few of these people in my past. And as I considered, what is it that they have? What is it that they know? What is it that they are that makes them this way? I I noticed a, a common theme, and it's not always, but a common theme of the people that I've met who have this kind of joy is that they had all known Jesus for a very long time. And so I, I thought specifically there's an experience that my wife and I had at our last church when we went through COVID, and we were a church of about 350 people. And so when, when COVID hit and it was at the worst, we had different groups for worship, and we had a service for the elderly and the immune compromised. And we had that service for about a year and a half where that was primarily, and for a long time, the only people who could come to that service. And after about six months, I realized that it was at that service, more than any of the others, that I left encouraged, that I personally left feeling the joy of the Lord. And my wife and I would talk about it, and I realized it's because I spent time in the presence of old saints who have known Jesus for decades and who had this type of joy. And when I say old saints, I mean old saints. And these are people who had reasons to complain and grumble. Their bodies were breaking. Many of them are on the very doorstep of meeting the Lord face to face through their own death. And yet they were joyful. They exuded joy because they had known the joy of knowing Christ. 
So even in chronic pain and sickness and uncertainty of how much longer they're going to live, these saints found ways to rejoice because they knew Jesus Christ. They knew what he had done for them. And they knew the promise that he had for them in glory. And this is the type of life that I want. This is an appealing life to me. I hope it is an appealing life to you. And praise God, it is the life that Jesus offers. So how do we enter into this life? How do we become people that rejoice always? I think Paul tells us here, and he tells us the way to a rejoicing life is to pray without ceasing, which is our second point for this morning. Now, you may hear pray without ceasing and think, well, that's just as impossible as having joy all the time. I can't do that either. And in the same way, I I think that too. But I think some of the reason we think that is because we think a little shallowly or thinly about what prayer is. And again, I don't think Paul is giving us an impossible burden. I don't think he's telling us, hey, these are more things that you need to do to live a good life. He is inviting us to the way that we were made to live. And so I think when, when we look at this and, and we see what does it mean to pray without ceasing, when we think about what prayer is, we, we find a better answer to that question. And so I want to take a minute and think about, if you would, how would you answer someone if they asked you, what is prayer? Right? If somebody asked you, what is prayer, what comes to your mind? Because in order for us to understand how to pray continuously, pray without ceasing, we need to know what prayer is. Well, if you're like me, you most likely think about prayer as talking to God. That's what prayer is. We talk to God. Well, if you press further, many of us would admit that our experience, our, our, the majority of our experience of prayer feels a little one-sided. It feels like us talking to God. And sometimes prayer becomes even more narrow than that, and it becomes us just listing our needs or our desires to God. And while this is certainly part of prayer, God wants us to take our needs and our desires to him. He wants us to talk to them. I think that's not the full picture of what Paul is giving us here in 1 Thessalonians. And a little while ago, I heard someone give a different different definition of prayer, and it struck me how often I think of prayer wrongly. And so what if rather than us thinking about prayer as as a one-sided us talking to God, what if we changed our definition of prayer and viewed it as an invitation to commune with God? Prayer as an invitation to commune with God. How does that change our perspective? Well, at the very least, I think it helps clarify what Paul is doing In our passage, again, he's not putting an impossible burden or commandment at our feet, but he's calling us to an incredible communion with the one true God. Paul isn't saying you guys need to pray more. Paul is saying the God of the universe has offered to commune with you. He's offered to meet with you. I want you to experience that. I want you to know the God of the universe. And in this way, the command to pray without ceasing flips our perspective. It's not about us going to God so that we can tell him what our needs are. It's about him coming to us in his grace. 
And that perspective, it fits so, so much better in our denomination, our church's definition and description of prayer. Here in the Presbyterian Church and the Greater Reformed Church, we consider prayer one of the three means of grace. We use that term. You've probably heard that term here before. Prayer is a means of grace. And these three means of grace are are worship, so the worship that we do, the sacraments that we participate in, baptism and the Holy Spirit, and prayer. And one author put it this way, that, that the means of grace are God's appointed instruments by which the Holy Spirit enables believers to receive Christ. God's appointed instruments for the Holy Spirit to enable us to receive Christ and the benefits of redemption. And so prayer is one of the very mechanisms through which God bestows his grace on his beloved children. And again, think about how that flips the perspective of what Paul is asking us to. He's not calling you to some standard that you'll never meet. He is telling you that you have at your disposal at any time, constantly, without ceasing, you have the mechanism to receive God's grace through the Holy Spirit. And when that grace comes to us through prayer, it changes us. And that's, a, that's why prayer has this formative power. It's a, it's a mechanism that enables us to, one, to create joy. It creates joy in us out of what God has done. Like those older saints that I mentioned earlier. Prayer is a pathway through which we can receive God's grace and be enabled to rejoice always. So this sounds, if this sounds appealing and attractive, which... I don't know about you, but it does for me. I want that kind of life. I think it's helpful for us to stop and and ask, well, how do we do that then? What does prayer look like that enables us to commune with God and to rejoice? And I'm going to offer just three practical tips. And uh, if Jesus has called us into this invisible or incredible life of joy, and he has given us this mechanism of prayer, how do we use it? And if you'll forgive me, uh, this is where I'm going to sound the most uh, southern preachery that maybe I've ever sounded from a pulpit before. But my three practical ways can be summarized by three words. Pray scripture, people. So that's a, a, a practical way to, to commune with God can be defined by pray scripture and with people. So first, how do you commune with God through prayer? Well, first, and this is, the most, this is the most groundbreaking for one. First, you pray. That's how you do it. And so if you want to pray, if you want to commune with God, do it. It doesn't matter what it looks like. It doesn't matter if your prayer is wordier or smarter or more intelligent or even more based in the Bible than someone else's. God wants you to pray. He wants you to come to him. So whether you're three years old or you are 83 years old, Pray. God wants to commune with you. And then if you're thinking, well, how do I pray? I'm not, if, if Yes, I want to pray. Yes, you told me to pray. How do I pray? Well, pray scripture. Scripture is one of those ways that we pray to and with God. And so a great way to do it is to use the Psalms. Psalms are the prayer of God's people. 
And so you can actually pray the words of the Psalms to God. So you can just open your Bible to the Psalms and use them as your prayer. That's one way to do it. But another way to pray scripture is to to find passages that speak to you, to meditate on them, to think about them, and allow the grace of God to meet you through his word. So meditating on his word, taking his words back to him. We pray, and our prayers are transformed by praying scripture. And lastly, you can pray scripture with and for people. And so we find times in our lives where we can pray with others or we can pray for others. At the very least, that looks like praying here together on Sunday morning. So you've come here to Grace Fellowship this morning, whether this is your first time or your hundredth time, pray with us. When we pray, repeat those words back to the Lord. Paraphrase them if you're in your heart if you need to, but pray with us when we pray. But maybe it looks like coming and and wanting to pray more. So you want to find other ways to pray. Well, one way that you can do that is there's a weekly prayer meeting of Grace Fellowship. I'd encourage you to go. Apparently, it's at the Tiptons' house. I'm sorry, I can't tell you who the Tiptons are, but you're probably here. Um, But if, oh, uh, sorry, I forgot the last name. So uh, find the Tiptons and pray with them. Go to their house and meet with them for prayer. But it doesn't have to be formal like that either. Look for times and conversations where you can pray with people. So when you're talking to a friend and they give you uh, great news, it's okay to say, hey, can, can I praise God for that real quick? And pray a short, simple prayer with them. Or if they give you their, their burden, I'm sure that they would want you to pray to the Lord. And it's okay to interrupt and say, hey, can we go to the Lord right now and pray for that? And just ask Ask what it is that they want, that you want, that is according to God's word. And children, this applies to you too. You should ask to pray with people. Ask for your parents to pray for you. See what happens if you say, hey, mom, can you pray for me? Dad, can you pray for me? Pray for one another. If if there's something going on that's hard or difficult, pray with and for each other. Pray when you can, with and for people. And when we pray in this way, we pray, we pray scripture, and we pray scripture with people, again, it has a transformative effect on who we are and on what we do. Each of these three principles, the practical ways, help us learn how to pray without ceasing. And through the power of prayer, the Holy Spirit changes who we are. And ultimately, that change is what allows us to give thanks in all circumstances. And that's our third point this morning, that we give thanks in all circumstances. And the life that Jesus is offering us is a life that's marked by giving thanks. And again, here, we, I think we're cre- I, I'm confronted with a life that I want but a life that I admit I don't always experience. And so what does a life that gives thanks in all circumstances look like? What does that look like? And I think it's similar to what we saw with rejoicing in prayer, is that we tend to view giving thanks in all circumstances from a different and maybe a shallow or thin perspective. And specifically, we can often think that giving thanks in all circumstances means that we find ourselves in the circumstances we want to be in. 
And I don't think that's what Paul is saying here. He's not saying that we have to be happy about the circumstances we're in. He's not saying that we have to be in the circumstances of our choosing, but Paul is reminding us that Jesus Christ offers a way through our circumstances. And when we know Jesus, when we know what he has done for us, when we know who he is, when we know what he's promised to do, that he has gone before us in suffering, that he has conquered every enemy that we will ever face, even the ultimate enemy, death, and that he has secured for us a future of joy and peace where there is no more tears, there is no more pain, there is no more suffering, no more trial. When we know those things, we can have a better picture and understanding of our present circumstances because we know he's promised not to waste a single one. And again, I think about Paul's own experience. Paul had a rough life. Paul did not live what most Americans would call the good life. Listen to one of his own recountings of his life. It's in 2 Corinthians. He tells that church, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And this is the man who says, and give thanks in all circumstances. How is that possible? Well, I think the answer lies in Paul's ability to see the greater reality beyond his present circumstances. Paul has given, been given a glimpse of heaven, a glimpse of who his Savior is, and a glimpse of what his Savior is doing. So he can say in the very same letter that we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. So though our present circumstances feel like we're wasting away, God is using that for our inner self. And he goes on to say, for this light momentary affliction. And put that in the context. I've never been stoned. I've never been left for dead. I've not even been robbed. And Paul had been all those things and many, many more. And he says, our light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. Paul knows that Jesus is using his circumstances to prepare him for a greater glory. Paul entrusts himself to a loving God despite his circumstances. And that's what he's calling us to do here in 1 Thessalonians. And amazingly, when we do it, when we change our perspective and we can see the greater reality of who Jesus is, what he's called us to, and what he's done for us, there is real change that happens in our life. 
And amazingly, this is something the secular world has actually caught on to. There have been all kinds of studies about what happens when you give thanks. And so most of these studies, they take two groups of people, and they do it in a bunch of different ways, but they have one group of people sit down and force themselves to show gratitude daily in some certain way. And they have another group that doesn't do that. And at the end of those studies, there are physiological changes in the group that has shown gratitude. Their lives are happier. Their bodies are usually healthier. They tend to be participating in more activities, even exercise. And I don't tell you this so that you'll simply make a new habit, though if you do make a new habit, I'm sure that will be great. It can actually change how you feel, but instead it's a reminder that when we step back from our current circumstances and think about what God is doing and force ourselves in some way to see beyond our present and see into that eternal thing, and when we see that there is room for us to give praise, real change happens, even physical change, because God is calling us into the life that he has created us for. He is inviting us into a better life. And this is the will of God for us in Christ Jesus. This is the life that Jesus offers you. A life that is marked by rejoicing. A life that communes with the eternal God of the universe. And a life that can give thanks regardless of the circumstances because we know that we are being transformed into the image of Christ. We know that he's using even the hardest things in our lives to show us his grace. God is calling you into this life. He is calling you to a life where you too can give thanks regardless of your circumstances. So when we think about God calling us into a Christian life, and when we think about calling us into a holy life, so often we describe it by the things that we give up. And that couldn't be more backwards. Yes, there is a cost to following Jesus. The Bible is an honest book, and it tells us that we often give things up. We often give up our comforts. Some of us give up our very families. We give up the, our, our relationships, our friends, or respect, or physical comfort, or emotional comfort. And some people even give their lives But never miss what that cost gives you in return. The life that you receive from Jesus Christ and his good news is a life of exceeding glory that we cannot comprehend. It is a life that leads to joy. Our light and momentary afflictions cannot compare to the eternal weight of glory that he is preparing for us. And this glory is the gift of our Lord Jesus Christ to you because of who he is, because of what he's done, because of what he's promised to do for you, he offers you that life now. He offers you a life of joy, of joy in knowing him, of joy in knowing that he is the source of our goodness. And he offers you a life where you can pray continuously, pray without ceasing, because he communes, he is invited you to commune with him. He has invited to meet you in his grace. And he has offered you a life where you can give thanks in all circumstances, not because it's the way that you would have chosen, but because you can know that he's using it for your good. Would we all turn to him even this morning 
and pray and ask that he might give us that kind of life. And as you do, I hope you might hear his promise as you turn to him and ask for that type of life. Hear the promise that he gives you in verses 23 and 24. Because the God of peace himself will sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord. Because he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word this morning, which reminds us of the life that you have called us to. We confess that this is not the life that we can make on our own. In our own decisions, in our own work, we find pain and strife and sin and disappointment. And so, Lord, we pray for your grace that you would give us this life. We thank you that you have called us to it, that we would experience the joy of knowing Christ, that we would experience the fullness of communion and prayer with our Heavenly Father and Holy Spirit, and that you would lavish your grace on us, even through that prayer, that we might be able to give thanks in all circumstances, knowing that you alone are the one who is faithful, and knowing that you are faithful that you will do it. May we trust in your faithfulness this morning. Amen. Would you stand with us?